Welcome to Poetry Spotlight, presented by the Ohio Poetry Association. I am your host, Jeremy Dusek, and with us today is Jean Briner. Jean was born in Appalachia, and her family was part of the outmigration. A graduate of Trumbull Memorial Hospital School of Nursing and Kent State University's Honors College, she has several books in print. Her poetry has been adapted for the stage performed nationally and at the 2004 Fringe Festival of Edinburgh, Scotland. She has received writing fellowships from Bucknell, the Ohio Arts Council in 97 and 2007, and the Vermont Studio Center. She lives with her husband near an Ohio dairy farm. Jean, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me as a guest. Of course. Well, could you start us with a poem? I Sure, I'd be glad to. Um, this, I want to mention um, where this poem came from, uh, Marion Post Wolcott's uh, photographs. She was with Walker Evans on the tail end of that uh, group of people taking pictures. So this is a picture of a coal miner, uh, Caples, West Virginia, 1938. Consider this coal miner who is still young and blue-eyed, how he rests his jaw in timbers of his palm face dusted over with what most shafts exhale. Down the road, you know, there's a shot hole, the place where he drags his hope like a sledge past the sun's pajamas and pulleys lower him in a wire basket. Inside dark caverns, lessons begin. His common hands follow glistening layers of pigment to the middle ear of the mountain What does he hear in this immense labyrinth? Does his heart complain that his shovel holds no ruby? That air dances, a full-breasted woman who spins her ether, drips juices over him, a siren song to make him stay. He carries a silver pail, jam bread, yellow cheese, coffee, cold in a jar. The memory of screech owls in the hollows of his boyhood, where he runs, fearless, and magnolias hang in pink ruffles. Warm yams stick to his fork. He tastes all of this, smells brown manure falling from his father's mules. His vision persists, a grail filled with morning stars. Think of the way We are all porters, the weight of picks slung over our shoulders, leaving in darkness morning after morning, the shimming up of our thigh bones to hold us in stanchions. The fatigue, days of garrets furnished in quiet grumbles, yet we are rich as this miner who scoops black honey from a nettled ridge. We become the bear, reign supreme in the starless land of tunnels where men with lanterns are kings. Awesome. Very cool. And, um, my dad was a coal miner. My brother was a coal miner, retired after 34 years. His son's a coal miner. Um, and the nine miners that were saved from underground. That was my nephew uh, on the drilling rigs and my brother-in-law. So uh, it's, wow. It's part of our story, you know? 
Absolutely. Because mm-hmm. you you said you moved uh, when you were when you were young, but you had kin you had kin that like all throughout Appalachia, and even when you right. moved. So so how did that start? Um, well, actually, um, my my dad where he was working in the coal mine, the seam of coal. When you mine out that seam of coal, you have no work. So as many families the world over, you have to put food on the table for the family. So. Um, his brother went first and he came to Ohio, got a job in the mill and he called my father and said, um, there's lots of work, so you better come, you know, and bring your family. So we packed up and, and there we went to Ohio. So, and that's the story you'll hear over and over. Sure. Mm -hmm. And, And how did you maintain ties with Appalachia once you came to Ohio? Well, um, Usually, if we almost every time we had the chance, uh, we would go back home for the weekends or, you know, when my father would get vacation, that was the vacation we went down to uh, both of our grandparents farm one was in the southwestern tip of Pennsylvania, and then my other grandparents was in West Virginia, but they were within an hour's drive of each other. So we were very familiar and we could go down there. and stay at our grandparents' farm too. And then, you know, our parents would come and get us. So. Sure. Mm-hmm. And, and you, cause what I liked about your poem, just the, the poem you read and your poetry in general is that what you're describing is not, I don't want to say like a meagerness, but it's, it's, it's a humble life, but you talk about how rich that life is. And I wonder if there's a parallel to poetry there because Poetry is a humble discipline, <laughs> you know, <It's, laughs> and, but it's also rich. So I'm wondering if that's something it, it intentional. Is, it is, it is, uh, poetry is a hum. It, it will teach you patience and, um, but it's the way to speak, um, for the land and how we, how we love each other and, just the dailiness of our lives, which I think is really does make us very rich. And, and I feel like um, not enough of that has been recorded. I mean, uh, I remember when I was in high school, all the poets we had to read, I didn't understand any, they'd all been dead for 600 years. They didn't mean anything to me. I, I just, I really, I couldn't get it. Um, And then I was 38 and back in college for the second time. And we were assigned Langston Hughes theme for English B. And I sat there and I said, all right, that's what I'm talking about. You know, yeah. Are they going to understand what I, you know, my people, my voice for, I had never seen anything in literature that looked even remotely like my family. Nothing. I never saw her story. I, I never, I didn't know about Appalachian literature until I went back to college in my middle life. And then it opened a whole new realm for me. So. How so? Oh my. I mean, I read Lee Smith's Fair and Tender Ladies. I read The Dollmaker. I read James Still, Jim Wayne Miller's poetry. I mean, uh, just Wendell Berry. I'm like, 
where where have they been? I mean, where have I been that I didn't know about these people? I mean, Lee Smith's Fair and Tender Ladies. I said, why hasn't this been made into a movie already? <laughs> I mean, I was just, you know, it was so I could really identify with the voices, with the landscape. And um, it, so then I knew I could write about my family and, you know, the out-migration and what it was. I, we had other people, even in my first grade class, that were from Appalachia, but they had been there the whole time and had just moved. So they spoke with the twang. They spoke the way people talked back home and they were made fun of. And so I didn't really say when we, when my folks always said, we're going home, didn't really say where that was. I just said, we're going home <laughs> uh, because I mean, isn't that awful, but I felt shame over my culture. And then in seventh grade, um, one of my African-American uh, classmates, her mom was going to have a baby and we were in uh, home ec class. And the teacher said, well, will she be having the baby at home? And, you know, Faith put her hand on her hip and she said, since when do they have babies at home? Well, my mom had, you know, my sisters were born in my grandmother's bed. I mean, you know, we were way out in the country and the a nurse lived the next farm down. And so Jerry would come when there was going to be a birthing and then the doctor would make it eventually and sign the paperwork. But I was the first one in my family out of six born in a hospital. So, and my two brothers were. So I thought, oh, you're not supposed to be born at home. I didn't know, you know, <laughs> I wanted to say, well, and then I just kept my mouth shut, you know? So I feel really badly about that, that, but I actually learned that in school, that there was something wrong or something. It seemed that that was a wrong thing. And of course it's not at all, but um, anyways, that's, that's just, that's just part of the story. But um, the people, the land, the braiding of lives, the voices, the stories, um, the community, uh, the way they support each other is, um, it's, I think it's outstanding. And I think it's something to be proud of, um, not to be ashamed of, for sure. For yeah. Sure. Well, and, and, you, sorry, go ahead. And they're artisans. I mean, my grandmother, my father's mom was a master quilter. I mean, and, you know, that just, you know, beautiful things she made. And she taught me how to sew. And I'm so grateful for that. So grateful. Um, so. Okay. All right. So it's interesting you mentioned that. Is, do you think that what you get from the kinship that you feel to your family and your roots and the artistry that you saw around you, do you think that those contribute different things to your writing? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like Nikki Giovanni says, take what you have and make what you need. So, <laughs> you know, the quilt pieces, you know, 
and whatever is at hand, the, the food that the garden is given, the meat that we've, you know, when we butcher the hog or the cow or whatever, the milk, I mean, and, and then the thing is to share what you have also, that's a, that's a big thing. And I think that you see, you see, I saw over and over growing up, you know, and, um, and that makes a person rich for sure. For sure. Yeah. What, what advantages do you think you might have over somebody that's just like from the sub suburbs? <sighs> well, I wrote a little poem about that, about rules, having rules, you know, it seems to me that but it's pretty hard to me to think that I'm going to live somewhere that I can't have a clothesline, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because I, I wouldn't understand that because of course, everybody wants to hang their sheets out and some other things. And it's just a, a natural thing. So um, it seemed to me that, you know, and even as we've been married for 53 years and so, as friends of ours would buy a house in one of those developments, like, and there's an HOA, you know, the head of the housing thing. Oh, we can't have this. And we have to have that. And our mailbox has to be right. Well, I just, I thought that was a lot of rules for that. We didn't need to live by. <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> I think we can just live, you know, and yeah. And so I think that with poetry, um, I like the idea of, um, of having the rules and having the, the forms and everything, but what I have to say usually doesn't fit inside those, you know, I can write a sonnet, can write a sestina and those things and a haiku and the others. And, but, you know, it's the shoe I can't make my feel good in sometimes you know so but I don't want to sound I think that we have wonderful poets and writers that live in those spaces and they're fine with it you know oh it's, yeah absolutely absolutely I think, for sure yeah there's pros um, and cons of living anywhere or having oh absolutely of absolutely Right. Yeah, that was that question was not to diminish the experiences of others. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. How much more hugely advantaged over your contemporaries are you? <laughs> no. No. So one of the things I find interesting is not only do you write about, you know, place, like poetry of place, I, I like. I, I like doing it often, but you also write about specifically displacement, that that move from going from Appalachia to Ohio and what it does to families and what it does to communities is ever present in your work. So I was wondering if you wouldn't mind talking about displacement and how it differs from just exploring roots. Right. Um, well, especially since I'm all, I always hear about migrations and people's um, angst over migrations and angst over um, people moving in that don't look like us and don't dress like us. And I think we were sort of like that, you know, I mean, we, where we lived in the projects, we had other people who were from Appalachia, but we also had people 
that were uh, from Eastern Europe. Uh, there were no uh, folks of color in our projects. They had to live at the edge of town, unfortunately. Oh, but um, I think that we are a population, especially in this country, of people who have been displaced the world over. It, it is that story. But we have to we have to be much more kind and more understanding. Nobody leaves the place they've grown up and loved their country and everything because they're raising their hand to do that. You know, there's deep reasons for that to happen. And until, and I do not think those are brought forth in our textbooks. Um, I think the only way we get to that point of understanding is by actually meeting our new neighbors, actually talking to people on one-to-one and, um, and also putting our story out there about the displacement so that other people can see, okay, even though they lived in this country and they, this place, this country is very regional, you know, you come, I mean, the people who live in Boston don't sound like me, uh, you know, and people from the deep South, they have their, you know, like Louisiana, I'm thinking, you know, with the French influence, they do not sound the same. That doesn't mean, I mean, you know, if they have to move here for some reason, come next door to me, you know, I welcome them. And that's, that's part of my culture that we, we don't, we're not supposed to, you know, put up more barriers for people. We're supposed to reach your hand out. And, uh, and so I don't know if I've said that very well, but. Oh, I think so. And I, I think you, it was, it was great. And I think that you touched on something that psychologists and sociologists have noted, which is integration is in, in experiencing people that are different from you is the number one way to reduce the fear and hostility that stems from being afraid of people that are different than you. And I think that it's, it's always nice to talk to somebody who feels regionally connected, but understands how important it is to, you know, reach out, to integrate, to maintain identity, but still integrate, to still have compassion for people, for everybody, for everybody else. And quite frankly, I mean, most of our doctors are not from this country. They're wonderful people. They're brilliant. And they're just, you know, I mean, they have been so, you know, I mean, really, that's why we're still alive. (laughs) You know, I mean, so amen to that. That's all I'll say there. Yeah. And and actually, that's a a good segue because you have an extensive medical history, (laughs) you know, career as a nurse. Um, you wrote the, the collection Smoke Poems, which won the American Journal of Nursing in 2012, uh, the, the Book of the Year Award. Um, you wrote uh, it was Tenderly, Tenderly Lift Me, which is a book about, correct me if I'm wrong, it's anecdotes about people in the medical community that you have witnessed or people that you've run into. And that, that was my thesis. So I researched historical nurses and wrote persona poems in their voice 
And then I went on with the project and interviewed um, contemporary nurses. Um, my youngest nurse was in her 20s. And my oldest were, nurses were in their 90s. And then I wrote poetry in their voice too. And that's what's been made into performance art piece for the stage, so. That's really cool. Cause I do want to talk about the performance stuff too. Sure. <laughs> Cause I do want to talk about, but let's, let's start with, let's start with the medical stuff. Let's just start simply. Sure. What has that given you and how has it affected your writing? Well, I, I went, I always say I came late to the table for almost everything except menopause. And for that, I was early, but I was, I was, <laughs> I was 25 when I got the chance to go to school because, um, you know, I married at 18, you know, in 1969, I mean, Vietnam was uh, in its heyday. And, you know, it was not, most of my classmates were married very young. And so I didn't have any money to go to school then. <clears throat> so then in seven years, we were in the shape that I could go to school. So at 25, I went to nurse training. I had never been a candy striper. I had never volunteered inside a hospital. I had a lot of illness in my family. My mom had manic depressive illness. My little brother, my baby brother had uh, cerebral palsy and my father was an alcoholic. So I was used to taking care of people. But when I got into the um, hospital, I, I absolutely loved it and I took right to it. And that's not uncommon for people who have illness in their background to become a helper in society and to, to go into a medical profession. But I, I was just to see folks, how brave they were every day when the rug was pulled out from underneath them very quickly. And they had to uh, figure out a new way to be in the world and maybe not be in the world very long. And that could happen to a mother, that could happen to a father, that could happen to a child. And all of those things did make me really, no one's had an easy life, make no mistake about that. So when I came away every day from those experiences and I saw how the nurses and doctors just you know, took charge, knew what they were gonna do, were gonna make a plan of care, and these teams came together, social workers, physical therapists, occupational therapists, and just the gears that you know went around this hub of this person whose life was in peril or was going to get better after the gallbladder was taken out. Well, was no little thing back then. Mm -hmm. So I would just come home and I would start writing, you know. Um, I just, it was like if you were pouring a glass of water from this big pitcher, I mean, it would just flood out. And I don't know how other people do it. I mean, I, I guess I know how Williams, Carlos Williams, because he sat on his prescription pad, but <laughs> I just really felt, you know, that I needed to um, say how it was, um, how, how I felt, but how I saw them and, you know, just, all of it. I, I, I just wanted, I wanted to not lose that ever. Um, I wanted it to be there. I'm not realizing actually that there were other nurses that have been writing about 
the same, you know, about that life for since the beginning of time. Um, how did we have called the midwife? Because that lady kept a nice journal, wonderful journals. So, really? yes, that's exactly how that came about. <laughs> that's kind of just yes, like yes. passing it, passing it along from person to person. Yes. So, um, so anyways, I, um, I, I didn't want to forget that. Uh, I mean, I know now that I've been in medical humanity conferences and, and all of that, I've met physicians who are sculptors. I remember one, especially um, I met at Hiram, a wonderful sculptor, what an artist, but also was a survivor of sexual abuse and her sculptures deal with that, you know, and, uh, but I mean, so I, I think, you know, we're multifaceted, all of us, and we have, um, we have many ways to speak, so. Um, That's very true. And people say, a nurse and a poet, I don't get it. But, you know, what medicine is, is observation and documentation. So it is, you know, it's like, you know, an apprenticeship. If, I mean, but I observed all the time. I remember things from when we were kids and when we were in school. I just have that. I'm a visual learner, so I can recall that up and write about it. So, Sure. Oh, it's so, interesting that you compare the poetry and the nursing that you find the parallel in the documentation and the note-taking. Cause I would have thought it would have been like, you know, the interactions you have with people at those moments. Oh, absolutely. I, I'm sure it is also, but it, it's just, it, it was, it was interesting to me that that's what you chose as like yeah. the primary. And I think taking care of the bodies of the sick is a sacred calling. I don't think you can do this work if you're not called to it. Uh, because I, you know, I started school with people that they just couldn't do it. You know, they, it wasn't, it wasn't, and it's good for people to find that out early on, you know, but um, the body goes into decline and uh, people are, we're not meeting them on their best day. So you have to, you know, you have to give them grace and um, you have to be a good listener. And you have to you have to sort through not just what you're seeing coming back with the lab work and the x-rays, but what you see in, in their body language. That's going to speak volumes to you. So mm -hmm. and the people that surround them, you know, what's their really what's going to be their um, circle of uh, support when they go home? Are they going to have one or not have one? You know, and that's really important for healing, really important, because yeah. we're not going to make everybody well, but healing is a different thing. Is, is that something that as a career nurse that most people have to come to grips with, like you can't help everyone? I definitely feel that it is. I definitely feel that it is. Okay. Mm -hmm. and, and you, you haven't just met with vulnerable populations through nursing but you have done pointed workshops a, a whole litany of, of workshops and in, in writing seminars with uh people from like cancer support groups and assisted living home you know hospice so how 
are those interactions different? Are, like when you're sitting down with somebody and you're working with them on writing, is it different than, I mean, I imagine it's different than like working a bedpan, but you know, there's different types of medical treatments. You know, It is, it is different. I feel that, you know, while we have the documentation, you know, you have to have evidence-based, but we do because Dr. Pennebaker's book, uh, Telling Untold Stories, absolutely they have done the studies, and if we just write in a journal, we will increase our immune system health, we will increase our T cells, we'll, you know, we'll get sick a lot less, we'll be sleeping better. It's just like Jesus said in the Gnostic Gospels, if you bring forth what is within you, what is within you will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what is within you will destroy you. Now, I'm a big believer in that. Don't carry that garbage around. But when you are faced with illness, such as um, the breast cancer survivors, um, I, you know, well, if one of the movie stars gets cancer, we all know about it within, as soon as the path report comes back, right? Sure. And, and I, I feel terrible about, I mean, I feel for them and their families. That's a horrible thing. But I keep thinking, what about Betty Smith? She lives, you know, at the end of my block. She's got five kids. What about her voice? What's she going through? You know, maybe her husband's sick too. And and how are they going to do? I just think we need those voices out there because, and so I just, I just went to the, you know, the oncology unit and I said, you know, I want to do this workshop. And so I had all the stuff there, the paperwork. I said, not going to cost anything paper and pencil we're going to get together and so we did it you know and then I always make an anthology when we get together you know we do we document the work that was one of the most important um, things I ever did with my writing life for two and a half years I had no idea I had no idea and at that time we didn't have cell phones you know I had I had them get throwaway cameras you know because I wanted Adults are different than children when you're working with them in workshop. Um, a lot of times they can't get into it until they can, they speak with the camera first and then they can respond. So I gave them like, okay, this week you're going to go out and take pictures of the country of illness. Okay. Then just write about that. Then the country of wellness. Okay. Then one, when war comes to you and then they chose from their journals what they wanted to put in the anthology. Well, I had no idea. And then I'm typing all this stuff, you know, because they, and I say, if there's something you don't really read, just say, don't read, Jean, don't put this in. Oh my gosh. I just sat here in my study weeping because I had no idea. I mean, the one woman, um, most of these ladies are not alive today, unfortunately. Um, but one of the women her children, she had been living in a car with an abusive husband, trying to get to a doctor. By the time she got to a doctor, she had stage four breast cancer. So she was states away from her family. The children had to go into children's home, you know, to um, um, foster care. They were all three in different foster cares. But on the weekends, she would get to have them. So she made supper for all of her family and she took a picture of that, the, the food cooking on the stove. And 
I'm not one that likes to cook anymore. <laughs> I mean, every night, you know, because once yeah. your kids get grown, you just want to, you know, you hate to think, oh, geez, let's just have something really light. And here she is. She's so happy that she can have her family together. They'll all be together and have supper. And I thought, this is what I'm talking about. Teaching you to love your own life more. So they taught me. I did not teach them. I just facilitate the boys. But also I go in with the little kids, clear through the high school students, because I want them to know that their voice is important. What they have to say is important, you know. So we go outside and I have them stand and look between their legs and look at the world upside down. How, you know, what do you think about an upside down world? What's that like, you know? And I can remember their poems. An upside down world would mean that my dad could be president and he wouldn't have to be rich, you know? Yeah. I mean, I mean <laughs> cool. this is a fourth grader. Yeah, pretty cool. That that opens things up. Literally. It does open things up. <laughs> yes. And uh, and you know, and so then same thing, we make the anthology, we have our little party at the end of our time what we're going to be together. So I and in the elders that are in um, assisted living or nursing homes, you have to take a, a tape recorder with you because their hands are so arthritic or maybe they've had a stroke. And so they can't write with the, if it was, you know, on the right side, they can't write with the left. But anyways, collect their stories. We have our workshop. Really, once you get them talking, the the tape recorder disappears, then you can just type up what they've said in the shape of a poem and then you everybody we get the anthology at the end of it and it's very validating for them because I remember one of the daughters came to visit and saw the anthology laying there and her mom was on the cover with her wedding picture because I had them bring their wedding pictures in for one one of my sessions she said mom what is this that you're on the front of and she said oh we've been writing books here we have poetry workshops (laughs) and her daughter said huh (laughs) so but you know she said we don't all just play bingo here we have you know we have real stuff some of us are writing poetry (laughs) that's right that's right (laughs) so I thought that was that was also a very very sweet and very important journey again to make you realize how quickly your life passes how much we have not shared with everybody you know it's interesting you say that because you have that piece that you wrote called Foxglove Canyon, and it has very metaphorically the place, the final place that you work at is called Final Rest. <laughs> I'm wondering, like, <laughs> oh, does, I think it's Shady Rest. Is it Shady Rest? It's okay. Shady Rest, but still, I mean, yes. Uh-huh. Does, that, does that, that really 30... drive the point home? <laughs> <laughs> I wrote that 30 years ago. Really? Yes. I was 40. I, yeah, I'm 70 now. That 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 piece is 30 years old. Believe okay. it or not. Yeah. Does it does it have new meaning looking back on it? Oh, yes, it does. It does. But it's, it's I mean, I've worked, piece. it's, you know. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, I've worked with I worked with all ages of nurses, of course, through the years, 38 years. But and they had their stories, you know, and uh also, I went when I went through training for three years, one of the women um, 
was way, you know, way older than us. She was a grandmother already. Both of her boys were pharmacists, but she uh, had been in the same school that I was in as a young woman. And her junior year, she snuck off and got married. They eloped. And you weren't allowed to be married at that time. So uh, when they found out, they made her quit school. And she was only allowed to sit for a licensed practical nurses uh, exam. So to her, it was unfinished business. So she came back to go through the whole program again to get her RN. And she did it. And she worked midnights and came sometimes. I mean, it was unbelievable. I'm like, okay, whatever she's drinking, I'll have some. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it's, (laughs) and she graduated and it was a really sweet, sweet thing. Yes. That's excellent. Uh, mm -hmm. So, yeah. Huh. What's more satisfying to you? Would you say, uh, like, just nailing the IV, like having it slide right into the right spot or getting the line just right in a poem? I have to say getting that IV because that means somebody's life. Because when they hit the door, you know, and we've got it, you know, and I can always redo the line. And but and redo the line <laughs> because, because that's that's the poke, truth. poke poke <laughs> yeah and you can't and and at the and so it is really you know especially when you have trauma come through because i worked er mostly and and that you have you know that's but you get that skill after a while but you are you're hoping because we need to get things, you know, fluids or medicines in right away, which I can tinker around with the lines here at the, but both are important because, you know, that means the difference. Um, each poem, it, no, no matter uh, if they're the walking wounded or if they're shiny bright and sitting up with everything each one is important. So, and that's what I tell my students, don't throw that away. Don't throw that away. Even if you don't like it right now, do not throw it away. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's good. Mm -hmm. And you, you had mentioned Williams, Carlos Williams, and Mm -hmm. you know, he, he was a, he was a doctor, but so I'm wondering if there were other medical writers that you read specifically because of their medical backgrounds, like John Keats and Chekhov, like there are several famous I know. And I read them much later, much later. Yes. I saw, I just, no, there were just contemporary poets that I really liked, you know? Um, And of course in 1990, um, I I was out in Bisbee for an international poetry festival because I won a scholarship at Kent and I met Jimmy Santiago Baca, uh, Wanda Coleman, um, Steve Cowlett, you know, and they, and they all had different, very, and Jenny Lim, very different voices. And Kajiko Shiraishi was there from Japan, but their poetry was stunning and it, it moved me. And, um, and they were talking about their backgrounds and their people. Mm-hmm. And that really moved me because I thought, oh, didn't really know that you could do that. <laughs> so, you know, so then I came yeah. home from that and it, it made me 
write about the migration. And I wrote in white heat, I wrote probably two thirds of Blind Horse that summer, you know. Now it evolved to be a more universal type of a book, um, you know, over the years. So because I mean, even after I finally got it finished, it was submitted 27 times. It was a national finalist four times before it found the press. So that's the story of poetry. You will learn to be patient. <laughs> and it's okay. Anybody, anybody <laughs> listening to this podcast knows what you're talking about. <laughs> right, right, right. So what writers do you read now? Oh, my. Well, I love um, Mary Oliver. And Tom Crawford is always going to be a a favorite of mine. James Wright, Langston Hughes, as I mentioned, Tilly Olson, Lee Smith, Lucille Clifton, Bridget Pegeen Kelly, who I'm sorry to say we lost, Phil Levine, Eudora Welty, Ray Carver, of course, Emily Dickinson and Robert Frost, our mother and father. Um, Maggie Anderson, my dear professor, I I didn't even know we had a poet and resident at Kent, you know, until I went up to the main campus. I was on a regional campus. So uh, she just did so much for my writing life and my professors from the get-go when I returned at 38 to the regional campus. Um, I would be remiss not to mention their names. Um, Vivian Pemberton, who is a Hart Crane scholar, um, Gloria Young, Dr. Gloria Young, and Elizabeth Hubler. They're just Gary Siuba. They were really important, really important. They said, oh, you should read this. You should do this. You should. And they just took me under their wing. And yeah, so it was very blessed, very blessed to have people that sort of ran it I ran into him at the right time and and then Maggie I had no idea that we had a poet in residence and and then turns out she's from West Virginia (laughs) who knew you know yeah who knew small world yes so you you had once said that uh I think either in an interview I found it when I was while I was looking you up you had said that research is your drug of choice and yes that you, it is a very fundamental part of your writing process. And so I'm wondering if, is it, to what extent is it about being informed as you're going in or working through the material or to, or to what extent does it help prime your creative machine? Is it, is it a part of that process or is it something it's like, oh, well, I'm writing this. I don't know if this is right. I need to look it up. Well, um, when I had my first fellowship at Bucknell, uh, that was in 92, June of 92, And that was the first time in my life that I just had a month to just write. So I went to the library. I love the smell of books. I love how they feel in your hands. And I know this is going to sound like a nerd, but I went to the bound periodicals. Okay. And I pulled down, I know, a Life magazine. I love it. Bound periodical. (laughs) And I opened it up. And it's about a nurse. It's about Maude Callan who was a nurse midwife in Pineville, South Carolina in the 50s. And W. Eugene Smith, who was the most famous photojournalist for Life magazine, did a story on her. 
And I stood there and I started reading it. And I could not believe that I did not know about this woman. For I had already been a nurse for a long time. And here she was. She was an iconic nurse. Um, so I, I got all those pages copied. And then I just said to myself, well, I want to write a poem for Maud, but Maud deserves form. I'm going to write a sonnet for Maud. Okay. So that <clears throat> was really, I, I have to say Maud's the one. Her and W. Eugene Smith brought me to, I mean, to research in a deep, and I mean, when I had to do papers for nursing, I was in the medical library. <clears throat> I did what I had to do to get those papers done and to, you know, to do that research. That did not wet my tongue like this at all. It was totally different. You know, here I am learning about this amazing woman. Um, so I wrote the sonnet and then the sonnet has been, it's been published in several places. I'm trying to think where, for, I don't remember if I'll tell you. But anyways, it's made into a song for the performance art piece by a very uh, talented young woman, Michelle McHenry. She lives in Florida now. And uh, to see the poem take another leap. I mean, really, that's what I'm saying. When art is alive and don't put any boundaries on it. Just, just like your own voice, don't put any boundaries on it. Just let it go into the world and see what happens because we don't know. We don't know. Um, so I was so tickled over that sonnet. I just worked and worked on that thing. Um, and then I decided when I was going to, you know, when, when they said you can do a creative thesis, I said, oh, well, now I did this thing on Maud. What if I just went about, you know, finding more historical nurses that we don't really know about? And then I'll do research on them. Oh, my Lord, I just love that. That was just, I mean, as we say down home, it was just like a pig in mud. It was wonderful. So, um, and I mean, I got the trial documents from Belgium about Edith Cavill, uh, who was a World War I nurse who was executed. Uh, then I wrote to her hometown where there was, uh, there's a little museum there. And I was trying to find a picture of her. Of course, I didn't want the picture where, she was laying on the ground shot. I wanted a picture, you know, and they went to their archives and don't, you know, somebody had stole a bunch of her pictures. So, but anyways, I was able to get those, but I just, it's like your little detective sort of, you know, and uh, it's very, very rewarding work, you know, and archivists love you because when you get in touch with them, they've been waiting for somebody like you to call for days. And I mean, so I've made some really cool connections with archivists, you know, and I, I, they're very, very nice. So. That's excellent. And, and I'll, I, one thing that I've learned is that if you can't, if you're looking at for, for a paper, like some research-based, you know, medical journal or science journal or whatever, just email the author, just say, Hey, could I please have a copy of the PDF? I don't want to pay like $120 for it. And they're like, mm -hmm. yes. <laughs> We'll send it to you. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. All right. Well, could you please wrap us up with a poem? Oh, I'd be happy to. So I think in light of recent world events in our own nation, I think we should close with a love poem. Mm. The Bread of Longing. Let us enter under a blistered white lentil, 
moving slowly, heavily, our arms interlaced. Let the foyer mirror be ordinary, your gray bathrobe, my mended flannel gown. Let our pockets be filled with the paper money of quiet mornings. Let us have one knife and the strength to slice the bread of longing on the kitchen counter. Let the table with its pale blue chairs be bathed in sunlight for the old card game of small talk, the simple fog of tea, the coffee's darkness. Let us speak in syllables of settled debts, survival, and unfrenzied corridors. Let our words taste textured as aged cheddar. Let us unravel the silk colors of knowledge, a smooth language folded, saved by protective paper. Let us gaze in wonder and surprise at the violet's fixed position of purple, the wind's sassy motion forcing gingham curtains apart. Let us have a pencil and a bottle for this note. Let us smile at the marked calendar of our best days. Thank you very much. You are very welcome. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Well, this has been Poetry Spotlight, a production of the Ohio Poetry Association. Please follow the OPA on Twitter at Ohio Poetry and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ohio Poetry. A transcript of this episode can be found on the OPA blog. Visit ohiopoetryassociation.org for more information. Thank you so much for joining us, Jean. Oh, you're so welcome, Jeremy. Thank you for having me.